Well, good morning, everybody. One of the things that uh, accompanied the preaching of the Christian gospel in the book of Acts is rioting. Riots breaking out, riots resulting from the outrage that people felt as they encountered the Christian gospel for the first time. In the book of Acts, there are at least six recorded instances of rioting and mob violence. And three of those instances are relayed to us in some detail. Today's today's text is one of those instances, a detailed account of the riot in Ephesus. And one of the questions that I have about this text uh, is, why is it recorded in so much detail? Why, Why do we need to know this? Will it be in the exam? <clears throat> Why is this account here? Well, Paul has a very marginal role. And Jesus isn't mentioned. So why is Luke telling us about it? Well, let's take a look. To begin with, the, just some observations. The account is bookended by Paul's decision to leave Ephesus. Before the description of the riot... Back in, uh, in verses 21 and 22, we have, uh, after all this had happened, it's before the riot, after these other things had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Archaea. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. <clears throat> And after the riot comes Paul's actual departure, chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar, that is the riot, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for his disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So we know that Paul is about to leave when the riot starts. Uh, Paul is mentioned at the beginning at the, and at the end, and also, interestingly, he is also mentioned in the middle. But overwhelmingly, we just get a description of what happened. And, and it, was a, it was a powerful thing. Verse 29, the whole city was in uproar. Now, modern historians estimate that the city of Ephesus at that time would have had a population in the order of 170,000 people. That's the size of Rockingham, Mandurah, Bunbury, and Kalgoorlie, Boulder, all combined. That's a big city. The theater, archaeologists know, would have seated around 25,000 people. So I'm not saying that 170,000 people all turned up on that day to shout and stamp in unison. I'm sure it was only a small fraction, but we are still dealing with a huge crowd. Certainly many thousands of people, possibly tens of thousands of people. And when thousands of people shout in unison for a couple of hours, it's a powerful thing, it's a spectacle, it's quite a force, as as we all really know today from our experience of stadium sports. No, because it's it's awesome, isn't it? You know, when the the whole crowd cheers and and the the hair goes up on the back of our neck and we get goosebumps, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's awesome in the true meaning of that word. It inspires awe. Well, on that day, no one was injured. But the atmosphere was so highly charged that the threat of injury, violence, even death was a very clear and very real threat. 
the Jewish community thought that Alexander might be able to point out that Christians actually were different to Jews and that they didn't like Paul either. But he never got a, he never got a chance to speak. The crowd just went berserk when they realized he, he, wasn't, he wasn't an Ephesian. Paul also felt that he, he could get the crowds to see reason, but he was restrained by at least two factions, the disciples and officials of the province who knew Paul and were friends with him. Um, that they held on to him. No, Paul. This is a highly irrational and dangerous crowd, as well as being highly vocal and demonstrative. So certainly the riot was a demonstration of power and a demonstration of very considerable power. That's why the Roman authorities hated rioting and rioting was considered a very serious crime. When, when a city rioted, the authorities lost control and they'd retaliate by sending in large numbers of troops. There'd be a lot of bloodshed. Uh, in Rome, the capital itself, uh, emperors won and lost their thrones in riots. So the Romans did not respond well to riots. Well, how did this uh, Ephesian riot start? Well, Luke, our author, tells us how it started. He records a speech made by Demetrius, a silversmith who is obviously a leader in the community of craftsmen and artisans and tradesmen whose livings were dependent upon the temple of Artemis. And this temple, which no longer exists, had been built and rebuilt a number of times before being completely destroyed in 401 AD. But in its day, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And according to the guy who compiled that list, it was the most astonishing and the most impressive of all. Even better, even more impressive than the Egyptian pyramids. People came from all over the known world to see the temple of Artemis. It was staggering in the city of Ephesus. Uh, the, the Greek goddess Artemis, who was understood to be the same as the Roman goddess Diana, uh, the goddess of, of the hunt of forests and hills, of moon and archery, and probably as an amalgam of lots of ancient goddess cults, because actually the name Artemis itself is, is not a Greek name. It predates uh, the Greek empire. Um, the cult was probably a, an amalgam of lots of goddess fertility cults concerned with reproductive power. And uh, by her tradition, <clears throat> sorry, by tradition, her wooden image was thought to have fallen from heaven <clears throat> and been found in the woods near Ephesus. We can be sure, therefore, that the temple of Artemis was of very considerable economic importance to the region, bringing in vast amounts of income through a variety of avenues, but probably primarily through the industry that today we would call tourism. So Demetrius is a spokesman for big business. The, the little silver shrines were either, you could, you could get either little silver uh, statues of the goddess herself, Artemis, or little pocket-sized models of, of the temple. And these crudely made figurines or models um, allowed a person, and they were pocket-sized, they allowed you to worship the goddess on the go, so to speak. 
to, to the ancient mind, the connection between a symbol and the thing that was symbolized was such a close and magical connection that in the mind of the buyer, to carry one of those statues with you was to carry the goddess with you. And to set it down and worship that statue was to worship that goddess. Demetrius's complaint against Paul, therefore, was multifactorial. There were many aspects to it. Paul, firstly, is preaching the Christian gospel, that the one and only God is the God of the Hebrews, and that he is found fully and finally in the face of Jesus Christ. Large numbers of people we hear were converting, and they obviously would have renounced their faith in Artemis upon conversion. Secondly, Paul was obviously teaching the historic Jewish view of idolatry, that all such statues were at best meaningless and at worst spiritually very dangerous. It is obvious to us, but it was a scandal to the Greek mind, this notion that man-made gods aren't actually gods at all. Um, that was so countercultural to the Greeks and Romans. Scandalous idea. Um, what if that got out? They'd all be out of business. Um, not only is Ephesus facing economic ruin, claims Demetrius, but the prestige of the city, the prestige of the temple, and the prestige of the goddess herself, all of this is under critical threat. And I think one reason why this incident is recorded is so that we can see that Demetrius's claims were both timeless and true. Wherever and whenever the gospel is preached, it is going to upset the economic status quo and it's going to destroy cultures. I hope that that is obvious. So obvious I don't need to either defend or explain it. The gospel humbles the powerful and empowers the humble. The gospel destroys economic slavery and oppression and frees those that were despised or marginalized or isolated. That's why Christians are unwelcome almost everywhere they go, especially by big business. And that's one, reason why, one, one of the principal reasons why Jesus was crucified. He overturned the tables of the money changers and he revealed the blindness of the religious establishment. Um, in order to avoid blindness, we need to have our eyes opened to such things. And here, Luke is opening our eyes to the grievances of Demetrius. But having said that, I think another reason why Luke may have wanted to record this event in such detail is so that we too can hear the words of the city clerk who did finally manage to reestablish order. Because he says, amongst other things, verse 37... You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. In other words, although the preaching of the Christian gospel actually did threaten the economic system and the religious culture of Ephesus, Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus were innocent of any direct interference. What we hear now through the reflection of these incidents is we hear a faint reflection of Paul's preaching and we find out he never mentioned Artemis. He never insulted her. He didn't mention Artemis in his preaching, nor did he denounce the manufacture and sales of, of little silver shrines. 
Paul and his mates simply taught the good news about Jesus and faithfully taught the scriptures. They weren't rude about what other people believed. Rather, they just openly confessed what they themselves believed. And I think the take-home message for Christians who likewise find themselves preaching the gospel in hostile environments is simply this. Don't fall into the trap of engaging non-Christians on the topic of their beliefs. All we need to do is to faithfully communicate what we believe and let the sky fall if it wills. Well, um, why else should this event be recorded in detail? Well, perhaps another reason is that the Bible shows us ourselves. Uh, To be sure, the Bible reveals God. No argument there. The Bible reveals God. But in order for that revelation to make complete sense, the Bible actually also has to reveal the truth about humanity as well as the truth about divinity. And what we see here now about humanity is not particularly flattering. Riots continue to be a problem all over the world. Um, As we're also painfully aware, the US has riots almost every year. Uh, that make uh, the news all over the world. The uh, U.S. has riots all the time. Most of them, the vast majority, are to do with some aspect of race relations. Australia also has had plenty of riots, and the vast majority are also to do with race relations, or perhaps more accurately, uh, as as we might say, clashes of ethnic identity. Uh, In recent memory, we've had Cronulla, 2005, Mob violence and riots over several nights in December of that year clashes primarily between young, male, Muslim, Lebanese, Sydney-siders and young, male, Skippy, that is Anglo-British, descent, Sydney-siders. Other famous Australian riots have been between British Australians and Chinese Australians on the goldfields of Victoria and uh, between British Australians and Southern European Australians on the goldfields of Western Australia. And there was a riot in Broome in 1920 that was between Japanese and Timorese residents. And in fact, all of these clashes are very similar to the one that we read about today in Acts, insofar as they involved, firstly, an economic grievance combined with a cultural divide That included an ethnic and spiritual component. Uh, All of the riots resulted from an economic grievance between two groups of people that were culturally divided, and that cultural division had to do with a spiritual element and an ethnic element. Riots, biblical or contemporary, seem to show us that we do not respond well when our cultural identity is threatened. We all love belonging to a group. In in actual fact, we need to. We have to. Because as a species, group membership is essential for survival. And the identity that we share with that group is called our cultural identity. When our cultural identity is under threat, we ourselves feel threatened and we react vigorously so as to neutralize that threat because it's a threat to our survival. 
It's a threat to our belonging. The riot described in our text arises because Demetrius points out to his peers that Paul and his fellow Christians were undermining the shared Ephesian cultural identity. An identity that was a complex mixture of history, tradition, reputation, spiritual beliefs, pride in their industry and craftsmanship, together with the wealth that that created. And they responded to that threat to their cultural identity with a deep, guttural rage. They were furious. And in this state, the the crowd responded as a single entity that was both dangerous and irrational. And they responded simply by re-establishing their shared cultural identity. For hours on end, they shouted in unison at the top of their voices, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I'm sure they all went home feeling really good about the fact that they were Ephesians who believed in Artemis. Just as, you know, you can go down to Subiaco or the other place and shout for two hours and feel so good after that that you too belong to the Dockers or the West Coast Beagles or whoever they may be. Because that makes you so superior. That's our shared common identity. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Does that sound stupid and childish to us? Well, of course it does, and it should. And one reason that we may be feeling contempt for these Ephesian people is that spiritually speaking, and we can see it clearly, they are Artemaic fundamentalists. What is fundamentalism? Well, we know it when we see it, don't we? Um, A fundamentalist in terms of everyday conversation is somebody who takes things way more seriously than I'm comfortable with. Just as a liberal is somebody who takes things way less seriously than I do, and I'm not comfortable with that either. Uh, Here at St. Barnabas, uh, we are all very smart and very well educated. And I point that out for any newcomers or visitors here today, just so you can know how lucky you are to be amongst us. (laughs) And that's why we don't like fundamentalists. It's because we are so superior. But perhaps a more critical definition of fundamentalism is that it refers to an an, an inability to distinguish between our cultural identity and spiritual truth, such that whenever there is a challenge to our spiritual beliefs, we react as though it was our cultural identity that was under attack, making us very, very angry and wanting to shout in unison for two straight hours, great is our God, great is our God, great is our God until we all go home feeling better. Here in Australia, we don't like fundamentalists. That's because we're all very smart and very well educated. I I point that out for any newcomers or visitors here to Australia today, just so you know how lucky you are to be here with us. That's why we don't like fundamentalists. It's because we're so superior. But without question, Australia is fast becoming a fundamentalist nation. As a Western nation, we inherited the secular space, the public space, where differences of opinion were acceptable on the basis of conscience, religious creed, or political conviction. 
However, our public places, our public spaces, including our state schools and our media, are fast becoming increasingly fundamentalist in their secularism. No opinions are allowed unless they are secular opinions. And that's a form of fundamentalism. It's also not what the secular space was created to deal with. Within Australia, to this rise of secular fundamentalism, within Australia, how is the Australian church reacting to this? Well, not particularly well. The established churches, like the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Uniting Presbyterian Churches, they're all so used to commanding very considerable social clout. Archbishops used to be asked what they thought about things, and their answers were listened to by those in power. And here in the Anglican Church, we were, we were used to authenticate things. You know, whether it be the crowning of the monarch or the blessing of a fleet or anything in between, it hadn't been done right until the guy in the frock had said something. But we've lost that power. We've lost that influence, that prestige, that privilege. And how has the Australian church reacted to this? Well, not particularly well. It's routine to hear Australian Christians talking about being persecuted and about persecution. Um, and uh, to be sure, everyone who wants to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But, but brothers and sisters, we're, we're not being persecuted. There, there, is no, there is no widespread persecution of the church in Australia. If there was, we couldn't meet like this. Uh, Christians from other nations, church historians, theologians, they all know that, that there's, there's, no, there's no widespread persecution of the church in Australia. What's actually happening is the loss of privilege. And the loss of privilege can feel like persecution. There is no widespread persecution of Christians, not even in fundamentalist Australia, not yet anyway. We would do well to not react by shouting in unison for two straight hours, great is our God, great is our God. What about our cultural identity, our shared cultural identity within the church in Australia? Well, in the last few decades, in the last generation or two, some wonderful things have happened. The old cultural identities have crumbled. The old dividing lines have fallen down. Whether you're an Anglican, Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, or Uniting, hardly matters anymore. When we meet at men's conventions or women's conventions, we don't even ask the question. Um, m most Christians in the course of their, their lives will, will, will fellowship at lots of different churches. Now a Baptist church, now an Anglican church, now, now a charismatic church. Um, th those old denominational uh, boundary lines um, are fairly meaningless. Uh, you know, and most services you walk into around town, actually you have to think really carefully to work out if there's a denominational um, alliance here at all. And that's a really good thing. But, and this worries me, we have seen the concurrent rise of new dividing lines based upon theological distinctives. Are you for or against the ordination of women? Are you for or against speaking in tongues? Are you for or against 
same-sex couples being married either in, by the state or by the church. Was the world made 5,000 years ago in 144 hours, or is it the outcome of 15 billion years of product development? We're building cultural identity not on denominational lines, but rather on theological lines, and actually that's still not good. Now, I'm not saying that these questions are equivocal or secondary issues. I'm not saying that we should celebrate theological diversity. I'm not saying that there aren't right answers. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard together at working out what the right answers are. But what I am saying is that when cultural identity is built upon theological distinctives such that compliance to the right answer is necessary for social inclusion, then something bad has happened. Um, If you know me well, you already know what position I hold with respect to each of those four questions. And because I know some of you well, very well, I know plenty of you who agree with me with respect to any of those questions, and plenty of you who disagree with respect to any of those questions. Do I feel threatened if we disagree? Well, occasionally, yes, I I do. Uh, But I have learnt long ago that if somebody disagrees with me and I feel angry about that, then there's something wrong. That's, That's about my need. That's about my need to be right, or perhaps more accurately, that's about my need to belong. I I have met plenty of non-Christians who disagree with me about almost everything I hold as sacred and important, and if in conversation with them I experience anger, I remind myself, this person is threatening your cultural identity. That's why you're experiencing anger. Drop the anger and love them instead. Interestingly, Paul never enters the riot, nor does he react to the riot angrily. When he desires to enter into the fray, it's because he desires to have a reasonable and rational conversation with them. He doesn't fully understand that that's not possible, so his mates have to intervene so as to protect him. But what we see here reflected through these incidents, what we see here reflected about Paul is that as an evangelist, he actually and genuinely loved people who believed different things to him. And that's quite an astonishing feat. I love people who agree with me. But I'm not much of an evangelist because in my smallness, sometimes I do feel angry with people who disagree with me. But, but when the love of Christ fills me completely, then, then I'll be big. I'll be big like Paul. I'll be a grown-up like Jesus. Until that day, I have a long way to go. Speaking of smallness, therefore, the thing that worries me with respect to the Australian church, the thing that I'm trying to talk about here, is when conformity of belief becomes a matter of inclusion or exclusion. And with respect to those four theological questions I asked, there are plenty of churches which say, in effect, 
we don't want to have anything to do with you if you differ to us on this theological question. Um, if, if, if you hold the opposing view, the door's that way. Goodbye. To put that another way, I'm delighted to meet, I'm delighted to meet another Christian who, unlike me, disagrees with the ordination of women, or perhaps, unlike me, believes the universe is only 5,000 years old. If that person, as a matter of conscience, their mind captive to the word of God, their opinion of theirs being, being based upon the plain meaning of Scripture, if, as a matter of conscience, they hold a different opinion to me, then I really respect that. And I don't want them to change their mind if that means loosening their grip on the Bible. What makes me nervous, in contrast, is when I suspect that rather than being a matter of conscience, it is for them a matter of cultural identity. And when they discover that actually I believe the opposite, that's when they're going to get angry with me for not believing the same thing they do. That's when they'll eh, label me non-kosher, deeply suspect, somebody not to associate with too closely, just in case... I contaminate them. I'm, I'm tempted at this point, and I'm going to give in to the temptation. I'm tempted at this point to talk about whole dioceses here in Australia who have held on to particular theological distinctives as a matter of cultural identity and who have a proven track record of rejecting and alienating any in their ranks who dissent. People, as a matter of conscience, suddenly realize that actually they don't quite agree what the rest of the diocese believes on this issue. And they find themselves, people, people don't talk to them anymore at church. They're not invited to lunch or dinner. They're asked to step down from any position of authority they had. And uh, they are rude things about them are said, both publicly and privately. And they literally have to flee as refugees to neighboring states and cities. I've met dozens of them. I, I, I won't name names because I don't have to. And to my, own, to my own wonder, I've discovered in preaching this sermon twice before, yesterday afternoon and this morning at 8.30, that lots of people don't know which diocese I'm talking about because it describes another diocese that I didn't know about. I make the point not to be divisive or controversial, but rather to demonstrate that the same kind of fundamentalism that the Ephesians were guilty of is alive and well in many Christian cultures, even though such fundamentalism was completely alien to Paul and, of course, to Jesus. What is this fundamentalism I'm talking about? It's essentially the inability to cope with one's cultural identity being threatened. Inability to cope, to distinguish between cultural identity and spiritual beliefs so that you react with anger and hostility and rejection when you discover somebody who disagrees with you. If I am going to boast about St. Barnabas, here is my boast. Here at St. Barnabas, nobody agrees with the pastor on everything not even his wife. 
if I am going to boast about St. Barnabas, here is another boast. We collectively have a tradition of preaching the gospel and teaching the scriptures. For exegesis, that is, finding out what the Bible means, for exegesis is a community activity. Only together can we interpret the word of God. So you too are a part of that. As we do that together in church or in home groups or in Bible studies or in evangelism or in conversation or at morning tea, as we go out and as we come in, as we consider the Word of God together, the gospel is going to lead to economic revolution in our lives and it's going to destroy the old culture. In order that freedom may reign, in order that whatever is proud may be humbled, in order that whatever is humble may be exalted, in order that fundamentalisms may perish, and in order that we may find that we're able to sincerely love our enemies, even those who disagree with us. And in order that in all of this we might become more and more like Paul as we too imitate Jesus. The Lord be with you.